0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
1: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be Extra Environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The Outsider the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, who's recently back from his occupying Wall Street, Justin Ritchie.
2: That's right. I'm now occupying this microphone instead of Wall Street. It was quite an adventure. I saw things that I never thought I would see. I actually witnessed the breakdown of law. I saw anarchy.
0: And I heard on the way back, you went into the bathroom of the airplane. What happened there?
2: I went to the bathroom in the airplane. I walked in. I was closing the door. I closed the lock and my friends who were outside, they told me that the door of the bathroom on the airplane moved from unoccupied to occupied. It had happened. Just by being down at Zuccotti Park, I automatically got a lot better at occupying everything.
0: Wow, wow, that is an inspirational story that everybody can relate to. No matter if you're a banker or a flight attendant, everyone has occupied a restroom at some point in their
2: life. Whatever percent you're from, 1%, 99%, we're top 33%.
0: Even the top 33% have occupied a... restroom of some sort, in some way, at some time in their life. Besides that, Justin, how's uh, life in Vancouver?
2: We're being occupied here in Vancouver. Um, Who's
0: occupying it, Justin?
2: A lot of people. They're down at the main square in the art gallery, occupying away. Some friends took down soup and food for the protesters today. I was talking to another friend who was out at Occupy Vancouver, and he was telling me that a lot of people who are coming out aren't the typical people who are activists. I think it's very easy to form a a stereotypical image of what an activist looks like. But what's really cool about the Occupy movement is it's getting people out who aren't your stereotypical activists. They've never been in a public action before. And a lot of people are scared. When I was in New York, I was talking to one of the people involved with media with Occupy Wall Street, and she was telling me that she was having discussions with people who wanted to support Occupy Wall Street, who appreciate the values of the movement, but they're scared to go down there because all the media images they see are Either large groups of people crammed together, which intimidate them, or people being arrested. And that's quite scary, but the reality is something very different. And, uh, you know, if you are hearing about an Occupy movement in your town or city, check it out because it might just be different from your expectations.
0: So you're telling me that not everybody's being bludgeoned by, by angry policemen and being shoved down into uh, the back of paddy wagons?
2: That's definitely not the case. There's quite a bit of peaceful action that's going on. However, and I And a lot of singing, too. A lot of singing.
0: But these movements are happening all over the world. I've talked to one of my friends in Rome. They're, they're going on and in uh, London, of course, they're going on. They're kind of just taking off all over the place. And in R- Richmond, Virginia, everyone seems to be having a Occupy Wall Street movement of their own, and just solidarity movements, which are great in themselves.
2: Is anyone occupying Chapel Hill?
0: There have been. In front of the post office, across from the UNC campus, there were, I think, at least five or six tents that I saw there. When I drove past, I, I waved and, and honked my horn, and they were, they gave me some thumbs up.
2: That's so cool. You should go down there and pass out some extra environmentalist cards.
0: I should. That's a great yeah. idea. There was a yeah. police car there too, so I, I was a little bit, you know, worried for those people. But yeah. probably, give just, one to probably the just joining in. Yeah. Give a, car yeah to give, the give, give a police officer a hug.
2: When we were up in Wall Street, everyone was chanting, NYPED, we're fighting for your pensions." Because it's true, the police are fighting just the same way that everyone else is to ensure that they'll have a salary and benefits and all sorts of things. So everyone's in the same boat.
0: Yeah. Except they have the job of trying to keep people from crossing into the street and getting hit by cars. Yeah. Which some people seem to like to do, which is, you know, it's okay. I think it's really important, though, with these movements. it's You have to be very, very aware of the violence that can erupt from these sort of things. And, you know, just to call people out when they're being a little bit too aggressive. So, Justin, uh, who are we talking to today?
2: We are really fortunate to have Ross Ashcroft who is behind the upcoming film, The Four Horsemen, which is coming out this fall. And it's a film about what really is happening in the world. He and his team sat down with people from around the world over the last few years and interview leading economists, thinkers, people who worked for major banks and governments and ask them what really happens. How does the world really work? And he discovered a lot of really fascinating things that overturned his preconceived notions and the things that he was told about the way the world really worked.
0: And we talk all about his experience with those people and we talk about interview techniques and all kinds of fun things. So without any further ado, let's jump right in.
2: So Ross, after studying land management at the Royal Agricultural College, you worked in the film industry and did stand-up comedy, and now you're getting ready to release The Four Horsemen, which is a documentary about the economic reality we live in, exposed by interviewing leading economists and financial commentators from around the world who explain how our world really works. Just as a first question, how did you go from learning about land management and studying agriculture to directing a film about economic collapse?
3: Um, Well, I spent um, three years at the Royal Agricultural College and after that, I genuinely wanted to be a farmer and still want to be a farmer. It's a thing I love. When you leave and then go into the bad world, you realize that you can't go and buy a farm unless you inherit a farm or unless you uh, are privy to, you know, a, a lot of money or a lot of capital. You can't go out and buy land. And and that kind of started a bit of thinking, a bit of fundamental thinking, really. I realised that you know if I need, if I wanted to farm, what I had to go and do is go and accrue money somewhere else, and then go and buy some land to do that. And, and really, uh, that's re- where where the uh, where all the thinking started for for what we've um, just launched recently.
2: Cool. So there's really that financial connection to starting a farm and farming.
3: Absolutely. And um, in this country, you're almost paid to farm the brown envelope, as it's called, because of the tax uh, cuts and subsidies and all this other inefficiency in the system, if you like, which is often uh, dictated to you from Europe or from Westminster. Uh, and farmers are could be far more efficient and far more uh, competitive globally if that system was modified, uh, that system of grants. Uh, was modified uh, and and if, if the inefficiencies were taken out of it, and that's something that's incredibly frustrating. I think it's incredibly frustrating for them, and it and it seems odd to have such a, a, a draconian system now when food and uh, um, food shortage and food supply has become uh, the key point on the on the global agenda.
0: What did the film industry teach you that prepared you to make the Four Horsemen? Was there a major catalyst in getting you started and moving in this direction?
3: Absolutely. The the one thing that it taught me is never sit in a development meeting, ever. Just don't do it. And I, I'll tell you why. By the time you sat in all those development meetings with executives and distributors and distributors, distributors and PR people and all the all the all the hangers on, if you like, all the apparatus around the film industry, you could have made the film. And inspiration has a sell-by date. Uh, you know, and you've got to get on and make it. And you and you've got to do it. It, it. There's no point thinking about it. And and Saying, oh well, for me, you know, it's a good idea, but will the people of Peru like it? And look, the, the point is, the audience will emerge provided you your research and you provided you you can tell a story and provided you, you know, not a conspiracy loony loony and all that stuff. Then you, your audience will emerge. It will find the film, and those development meetings are they are an absolute kill on creativity. And filmmaking now has become accessible to man on the street. You know, the old monopoly is starting to really die. And, and the monopoly of film distribution is is on its way out, and the industry is in total disarray. The blueprint, of course, for that is the music industry. The, the thing I learned most from the film industry, well, two things really, to be in the film industry, you've got to get out of it. Because what can happen is you can become incredibly kind of insular, and filmmakers talk to other filmmakers with their products, and that's not good because it's aloof and it doesn't uh, talk to a wider audience. Uh, and the second thing is, don't sit and develop meetings because they're the nemesis of creativity.
0: So, we mentioned in your in your bio that you have a handle on how the world really works. Now, I've been trying, struggling to understand how the world has really worked for my entire life. And I'm really, really glad that we could bring an expert in on how the world works into the show. <laughs> could, could you well, tell us a little bit about how, how the world works and maybe explain yeah, it to yeah. somebody who's been struggling with yeah, no trying problem. to figure it out?
2: <laughs> How long have you got? Hey, we have, the, we have the whole hour here. so Perfect, perfect. I
3: mean, I know roughly what's going on at the moment, and I understand uh, in broad terms where the world is at. Um, but really, my job uh, with the Four Horsemen was to get out of the way of uh, the 23 contributors and have them speak uh, in a way that, that people can understand it. So really, it's those guys who define how the world really works. And our job was to cut through a lot of the disinformation uh, uh, that goes on and the propaganda and all the stuff that you listen to and you think, well, that that can't be right or that, you know, that that just doesn't sit right or that doesn't, it doesn't sound right or what they're saying is not what I'm experiencing in either the business world or the, you know, in entrepreneurship or, or in society generally. So the job really was not for us to come out and dictate about how the world works it, with our worldview. It was actually to listen and to ask the right questions to these guys who've had incredible careers and, and held you know positions of power uh, and, and really seen the system and, and see it work from the inside, if you like. And one of the key criteria to uh, get the interviewees was that they have to have been through a transition. So we read a lot of what they'd written and it was clear that all of them had started by thinking, that, you know, the capitalist model as we got it uh, is, is the one and that's what we're going to push and we're dedicated to it and committed and here we go. This is going to set the world alight. And I think that what they've seen collectively all been through is a, is a stage of transition where they've thought, you know what, this, this isn't going to work. Um, so really it was those guys who, or uh, come together uh, metaphorically in the same room and talk about how the world really works.
2: What was it like to sit in such a close, intimate setting with these unbelievably accomplished and intelligent people or uh, almost a comedian like Max Kaiser, right? Who just, uh, make you laugh and, and talk to them about such deep issues Did was there like, a, you know, was the air thick with atmosphere or what did it really feel like? It's terrifying.
3: Noam Chomsky, I've seen on the internet, I've read his stuff and all the rest of it, then suddenly you're sitting opposite him. You ask the first question, he answers the next five on your pad. You know, you've got to be on your game with these guys. The the humility is huge, is absolutely huge. Something happens, I think, when people speak the truth, when they're speaking truth and not propaganda and not soundbite and not, uh, you know, politicians speak. Everyone kind of relaxes and then that... Uh, that truth or that conversation emerges very naturally. And interestingly, actually, guys, when we looked at the tapes back, an awful lot of the clips that we took and put in the Four Horsemen film were clips that came often in the last 20, 25 minutes of the interview. Because what had happened during that time, you know, we'd said, well, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? You know, these guys, when they start on their area of expert passion, they drop all the mask and the, and the let's say the the uh well the things that that you have to have up the guards the defenses when you work in big institutions or if you're on mainstream media et cetera that that all dropped and we got some real gold uh during well, towards the end a lot of the interviews that was really interesting but they're great they're, you know they're wonderful people
2: and I saw David Corton speak, and he does a lot of work on thinking about new ways of, of running an economy and he said that uh, lies have to be told over and over again that's why we have 24 hour news but truth only has to be told <laughs> once I, okay. I i i could understand that feeling like when when you're with someone and they're actually speaking about truth off of what justin's saying and off
0: of what you said when you're interviewing people if you get past that you know set pieces that they have you know, lined up for you, and you get past that, and you can actually get into the stuff that makes them makes them extrapolate a little bit or makes them think and makes them improvise a little bit on what they're saying. You get the really juicy stuff off of that, too.
3: Basically, once you uh, get past all that stuff and they do uh, start talking like that, you can't stop them. So Noam Chomsky, when we interviewed him in his, um, in his office at MIT, his PA, and you'll hear on one of the clips in the film a lot of kerfuffle going on outside the door because... He was so uh, delighted uh, not to be talking to mainstream media about these issues, which often get cut and cut and cut. He was very despairing about, it. in fact, the BBC. said, "What's gone on with your BBC over there in the UK? And I said, why is that? And he said, well, and we got this on a tape. Uh, he said, um, well, I was over there doing an interview and uh, someone was asking me. There was this very pretty girl asking me questions and she didn't have a clue what she was talking about. There was some other bloke behind her writing uh, notes and feeding her the questions. And this whole thing was theatre. And I think that what happens when you're independent, you, you give these guys the opportunity to really speak and their PAs get really angry because we absolutely kill the schedule.
2: And do you think that mainstream journalists really do research on these topics before they go in to talk to someone like that about these issues? Because I feel like so many of the mainstream stories have uh, are so shallow in probing any any type of deeper financial issue.
3: The problem is with a 24-hour news channel and a what Michael Hudson in the film calls the fire sector media, which is financial insurance and real estate. They basically control the agenda. And the journalist is worked to the bone by having to fill, you know, a piece at 10 o'clock, a piece at 12 o'clock. And, and it's very difficult to any depth whatsoever, really. And that was really important with this film. What we didn't do, and this is what an awful lot of journalists do now, you know, it's journalism, it's in-pace journalism. So what we do is we get hold of the idea in the studio and then we go out and make the people who we've interviewed fit our story. And that is absolutely wrong, and I'm, I'm really against it. And that's why it took so long to edit this, this picture, because what we did was went out and got all the talking heads, and then to serve their words as truthfully and as honourably as possible, we had to put our story around that. Now, that takes huge patience in edit, and I'm just very lucky that uh, I've got a, a head of post-production at, uh, where we work, uh, called Simon Modre. who and he's an editor and a storyteller, and he was so tenacious and, and so patient to get this story right. But you know, people don't have that luxury. People don't have the luxury of that time. And often, if there's a lot of capital behind a film, we come back to the development meetings. If there's a lot of capital behind the film, and that capital needs to be repaid very quickly, or the interest on it is mounting day after day post-production then you, uh, unfortunately, are, your hands are tied often as a, as a writer because you, you've got to get the picture out and the circus moves on. So it was about serving their words honorably uh, and not doing the copy and paste journalism that, that we, I'm sure, have all been inundated with over the last 25 years. Really.
0: Yeah, it's too bad that journalism is always on such a tight schedule. So you coming into this interview, I'm sure you guys did a whole bunch of research just before you could even talk to these people. Uh, how much of your worldview do you think was set before going into the interview, and how much of it changed after talking to these 23 guys? Did any of your core perceptions like radically shift during the interview and be like, "Oh wow, I never thought of that before. That is an incredible idea."
3: Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, you start with your worldview is constantly changing, and I always thought that it was. When you listen to filmmakers and, and writers and directors, they'd say, I worked on this project and, it, and it's really changed me. You know, I would always think cynically that that's just kind of, well, just Hollywood speak for, you know, trying to talk a project up. But this genuinely has, I think, changed the whole team. And, and the big revelation really, guys, was that um, everyone's saying and that capitalism has failed. Uh, and the big revelation is that it hasn't. The brand of capitalism that we have at the moment has worked perfectly according to the rules that, that the, I suppose, masters, if you like, have set. So, uh, and, and that's sobering, because you're often sitting in a hotel room in, in Boston or wherever thinking, oh, look, I've been brought up to think that this is all the way to go, and this is what we do. And then suddenly, you're you, when you're talking to these guys who you respect, then they're telling you, no, this is, this is actually how it works. You, um, <laughs> yeah, as I say, it's sobering. So yeah, radical shifts in
0: thinking. I know when I do interviews, I, I'm a journalism student, I went to uh, did a lot of interviews during my college career. And when you're talking to somebody, and they're hitting on those points that you know, are, are going to make great storytelling moments, it, you just get yeah. that feeling inside of you just like, Oh, wow, this is gonna be so good. Did you have any of those as you're going along?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, of course, the thing is, in 90 minutes, what what do you leave out? Because, you know, if, if I was, we're really tight on edit, And we you know, if, if, there, if there, it's about killing your babies, isn't it? And you, you've got to get rid of the stuff that, that is surplus to the story. I mean, really, if I'd have made this film my way specifically, it'd be about 19 hours long. It'd be like the Mahabharata, you know, But because there's so much to say. But yeah, of course, little just just nuggets of stuff when you think that's going in.
2: Yeah, and, and so you mentioned that you had a little bit of this idea that capitalism was failing, and then talking to all of these people, you we're hearing that it's it's becoming stronger in delivering the society that the power elite are desiring. Could you speak a little bit about some of the core moments that reinforced or demonstrated uh, that this was the new reality for you?
3: Yeah, well, you start to look at uh, the, the economics that we've... Because ultimately, you've got to get through all the smoke screens and get right to the root of it right and you so you can ignore all the politics ignore all the pieces in in the press about banker bashing and all that stuff all that sensational stuff and you've got to get right to the core and the core is economics and we've had uh, over the last 100 125 years junk economics taught, basically. We've got generations of people now who are walking around thinking that they are, you know, a fae with uh, the economics that were taught by the classical economists and they have a rounded view of economics and that what they've been taught is gospel. And the reality is that the economics taught over the last century is worthless, fundamentally, because it doesn't actually, well, it just does not, in any way represent what goes on in the real world. That These are models and these assumptions, and the, uh, all the jargon is not of this world. It is how the world ought to be uh, in their view, in, in neoclassical economists' view, um, versus how the world actually is, which is what the classical economists uh, always said, you know, one has to work from. So that was, the, that was the revelation, and um, it's such a huge story, uh, you know, that the, of this systemic failure. Uh, where do you start? Where do you start with it? Because it's not very, you see, when you're making a story about a banker, I mean, there's a banker in London, I don't know if you heard it today or yesterday, was arrested for uh, fraud at UBS.
2: Right, yeah, 2.3 billion, I think, or something like that, yeah, U.S. dollars exactly. in the trade.
3: Exactly, and I think they're upping it a bit now, I think they're finding a bit more, you know, he's become the kind of Nick Leeson of our times, if you like. Uh, so he's a whipping boy. And, but you see, this is the problem. W- what the public perceive is that if you take one bad apple out of the system, the system can then go on and function as it should uh, normally or get back to normal. Um, and Gillian Tett talks about this in the film, about the Hollywood film uh, construction model. You know, you take the bad guy, the Bourne identity, you, um, Jason Bourne fights the bad guy, takes him out of the system, and the system then functions perfectly again. But you see, unfortunately, that isn't how it works in the world, especially when the system is at fault. And it's very, very difficult to make a film about a system and make it cool uh, because people talking about systems, it's so cryptic and so kind of ephemeral it's very difficult to kind of give it a personality but when suddenly you've got a trader and he's got a lavish lifestyle and he's had a private education and you know and all the kind of stuff that surrounds that suddenly we want to tap into that how old is he what, what how does that reference my age could I have done it at his you know what's his background all all this stuff comes in and they're kind of juicy bits for journalists to write about but taking one of these guys out of the system is going to rectify the flaws at the heart of uh, uh, of a system that, as we can now see, is is um
2: under severe strain and and some would argue collapsing. And so, do you think that in your film, you're able to tie the system into the into the people that are telling you about the system, or is that just so hard to do because the system's so complex?
3: The system's super complex. and the reason it's super complex is it has to be super complex because they because people Joe sixpack. It's not good if he knows what's going on. Tara Goldawani in the film quotes Henry Ford saying, you know, if, if people knew what was going on in the banking system, there'd be revolution uh, before tomorrow morning. So all that jargon and all those words and all that, all those equations, rest of it, are, are, are a necessity, really, to uh, stop people from understanding what's really going on. So our job was to cut through all that and try uh, and get back to big, broad basics. It, it, this isn't an academic paper. Film is there and we paint in big, broad, emotional strokes. And if we can just nudge the people and, or evoke something in them to start the, uh, the journey of, of working this stuff out for themselves, because, frankly, they're going to have to over the next uh, decade to really be able to protect themselves and understand how to go forward in this very uh, predatory system then our job really was to it was to light that fuse paper if you like and the only way we can do that is to come back to, to real to the foundations of it of this system and explain why it's gone wrong in the way that it has
4: standard daily practices in finance uh, are having very destructive effects on on countries, on people individually. Um, And in my area I was working in uh, the interest-based financial products uh, department. Uh, So when you start to wake up and look at what's happening in the world, when you look in Africa and you see that countries are paying much more in debt service and interest charges than they're spending on their healthcare system. when you see that you can't help but feel some um, a big kind of conscience attack <laughs> because you're earning a living out of this uh, practice of uh, interest-based debt um, so for me when i started to uh, look around the world and, and, and examine what really was happening uh, i felt that uh, i wasn't really doing the right kind of job <laughs> Uh, for society as a whole, and and once you start thinking, going down that track and examining, uh, you pretty soon find some very uh, unsettling, uh, and and in some cases really, uh, almost criminal facts that have been hidden uh, from the people at large.
5: And by the way, this is not just my belief. This is what independent economists have said, not politicians, not just people in my administration, independent experts who do this for a living
6: according to the u.s government 9.1 percent of americans are unemployed yet experts say deceptive measures and statistical shenanigans are being used to mask a jobless epidemic that's far worse
7: they do not count part-time workers who are looking for full-time work and they also don't count long-term unemployed people people who've been unemployed for over six months back in
1: time Those people would have been considered unemployed but the government constantly changes the definition of who's unemployed and they do that so that the unemployment number looks lower than it otherwise would have been.
6: When part-time workers and the unemployed who have given up hope are factored in, the real U.S. unemployment rate increases to more than 16 percent, a more telling but often ignored statistic.
7: If they were included, then, you know, the government would have to acknowledge that they truly have a major crisis on their hands and they have to do something. You know, this is part of their propaganda campaign. It allows them to continue the status quo until society starts completely breaking down. Our economy really needs a jolt
5: right now. This is not a game. This is not the time for the usual political gridlock. The problems Europe is having today could have a very real effect on our economy at a time when it's already fragile. There is no doubt that growth has slowed. I think people were much more optimistic at the beginning of this year, but the combination of a Japanese tsunami, the Arab Spring, which drove up gas prices, and most prominently Europe, I think has gotten businesses and consumers very nervous. And we did not help here in Washington with the debt ceiling debacle that took place. you combine all that, there is no doubt that the economy is weaker now than it was at the beginning of the year.
6: The capital of the country's motor industry now has an official unemployment rate of just under 30%. But city officials and residents, like Zenobia Jeffries, say the real figure is close to 50. How do you describe it? It's, it's um, I think it's indicative of what's going on in the rest of the country, and they're just now feeling it.
1: And rather than trying to pretend uh, that the situation isn't as bad as it is, we need to accept how bad it is, uh, because then we have a better chance of recognizing the mistakes that we're making.
6: U.S. President Barack Obama has proposed a $447 billion plan to help resuscitate America's workforce. But just like any life-saving procedure, recovery can only begin to take place once the depth of the condition is fully understood.
2: This is The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Ross Ashcroft of The Renegade Economist. So let's play a clip here from Simon Johnson on, uh, on understanding to cue up this next question. You should not assume
3: because, you know, you don't have a background in economics or in law that this is, these issues are
0: somehow too complex for you. They're not complex at all. It's very simple. It's about power,
2: uh, and it's, it's about um, democracy, and uh, you understand that uh, just as well as I do. Did you find that this complex system of, of international financial flows and complex debt mechanisms was hard to understand, or or did speaking with all of these insiders simplify the story for you?
3: Yeah, it did simplify it, but it didn't oversimplify it. I mean, you know it, look, the point is it's really, very simple. And as Simon Johnson says, it's about power. It's easy to go out and buy a politician. It's easy to corrupt democracy in this way. It's easy to corporatize democracy. That's very simple. All these people who don't think that they're economists I don't think that they're entrepreneurs i don't think that they're storytellers you know i beg to differ if if you're uh, a, a woman in the world and doing the family shop and, and budgeting and, and understanding you know where the money's coming from and keeping a family moving uh, in the right direction and the rest of it you're as much as an economist as a lot of these guys who sit hold up in a in fact i'd argue you're more of an economist than all these guys hold up in their ivory towers spitting out these equations that don't mean anything so it is simple when you get down to it. We just got to cut through this doublespeak and this doublethink and, and this jargon, I suppose. But yeah, they they did a superb job at simplifying it. You know, talking about banks creating money out of thin air and talking about the best tax system to implement that all the classical economists uh, advocate. And and they cut right down to the to the root of the of the issues. And and that that was, you know, it's well, is it cathartic? It's certainly therapeutic to hear it because. In a, in a world where you, you think you're going mad when you think "God, this is just so uh, intuitively it all feels so wrong to hear these guys actually say it was um, without being overly dramatic it was kind of balm to the soul you know
0: so it's really easy to think sometimes when you think that everything is planned and everything is just going along according to somebody else's plan how much of the world do you think is planned out and or versus the uh, the thought out and manipulated part and maybe to take that step forward is our world a grand conspiracy, or is it just some grand incompetence that we're all just trying to scramble and react to?
3: It's a brilliant question because one of the things that we uh, did before we started making this film was we watched all the conspiracy theory films. Because if you watch the mainstream media, there's a, there's a guy in this country who was basically Tony Blair's henchman. Um, he was his propagandist or spin doctor. Uh, his name's Alistair Campbell. And he is always very, very quick on uh, all these uh, panel shows, news shows. Uh, to use the word conspiracy theorist because it's used to marginalize um, I mean when Tony Blair went into Iraq for the oil, uh, and whenever the oil question came up, uh, he would very quickly slap the conspiracy theorist tag on somebody uh, and and that would you know do a good enough job to marginalize them. The point is that it isn't a conspiracy; the whole thing is not you know one kind of odd uh, group. Uh, uh, sitting behind the curtain pulling the strings and you know having people knocked off and yeah of course there are diplomatic fights and of course people there's all the uh, I suppose intrigues and thriller elements of of, uh, international relations between nations yes there is that but I don't think for a minute that it is possible to organize (laughs) um, however many billion people there are now on this planet in a way to deliver a result that you want because think of it why would you ever derail the gravy train why would the bankers or or the uh, puppet masters if you like ever say you know what this is we're taking huge bonuses we're taking massive uh paychecks home we're living the life of riley there's no problems there's press aren't sniffing around everyone's going in the right direction i tell you what we'll have a crash i don't think it happens like that the crash happens because it's structurally determined and, uh, and the reason it's structurally determined is because of uh, the junk science uh, that, or the junk economics that we've taught over the last 125 years. Now, that comes to another point, and I, I'll be very quick. The point is that behaviour in the market and the behaviour in, in uh, the economy, see, it's not a conspiracy, but all that behaviour is determined because of the way that we treat natural resources, the way we treat uh, the factors of production, basically. Now, the conspiracy, I suppose, has been laid about 125, 150 years ago by co-opting or corrupting the the, um, teaching of economics. So, yes, there was certainly a conspiracy back there by buying off professors and telling uh, Ivy League universities all around the world not to teach a a certain brand of of economics, because that brand of economics, uh, i.e. the classical school, um, and treating factors of production, um, in a very different way to the way we teach them now, uh, that would deliver a very, very different society, socially just, uh, uh, environmentally far more sound, um, and from an equality point of view and a quality of life point of view, uh, it would be utopia in, compar- in comparison to what we've got now.
2: And we recently spoke with Manfred Max neef and he has a book, Economics Unmasked, and one of the things that we really didn't get to talk about in depth in the interview is how in the book he does an incredible job of showing exactly what you just mentioned, how throughout history there's been all of these alternatives to our current economic systems and uh, alternatives to neoliberal economic systems and uh, every single time those systems have lost out because the neoliberal models have always reinforced the power elite of uh, of power and greed and served their purpose and so we've really lost out not so much in a conspiracy, a grand conspiracy, but like little ones over time that have kind of pushed away these alternatives. And that's what he really does a good job of of showing in the book. But uh, in in tying it uh, back to one of the clips that we have, the U.S. is at the core of this neoliberal model of thinking and has really extrapolated that to new heights and sent it around the world. And uh, so we have uh, Max Kaiser uh, a clip here, so um, we'll, we'll play that.
7: You know, in the U.S. there's this idea that money is God and it can do everything. And it's a very short-sighted way to, to, to run your country. And, and now people are, what are they going to do? Because they're run out of money. So they have nothing to fall back on. No culture, no infrastructure. When you take the money away, what are you left with in the U.S.? You've very little. It's very little. You know, there's a bunch of guns. That's about it. Guns and donuts. Guns and donuts. in a 24-hour cable channel with old Ronald Reagan speeches in between Canada and Mexico, that's it. Guns, donuts, old Ronald Reagan speeches, everything else gone, nobody home.
2: What is the US left with? Um, The the core values and mythos of the society are fighting harder and harder to match reality these days. And how does it look uh, across the Atlantic Ocean uh, from the UK's perspective?
3: Well, look, I mean, let's start by saying that the clip that we've just heard, Max, although it's, you know, funny and, and, um, and, and he's hugely entertaining, and, and, you know, we went and interviewed him in Paris and had a great time, it, it was unfortunately on the cutting room floor, and I'll tell you why. Because it's unfair to say, what have you, you know, what, what else have you got apart from guns and donuts? America has got so much. It is absolutely the mentality in America... The, the innovation that's come out of the country the work ethic the people the the pride that they have generally the, the service that you know the list is endless um, and that's why Max didn't end up in the film with that because it's a bit damning and, and although it's a kind of cheap shot it's not it's not our film now where does it leave the. US well we unfortunately have to come back to this and and how the UK perceives it look we're pretty much in the same boat the UK and the U.S. insofar as we've taught and we're back to this junk economics thing uh, that we, th- these economics have underpinned both societies. Now the Chicago boys so Manfred Max Neif um, co- covers this and, and it's you know it's no, it's no coincidence that a Chilean, a Chilean um, economist is talking about things these things who, who, and because he's been exposed to the wilds of them namely the, the Washington consensus and Noam Chomsky in the film talks about the first 9-11, where, you know, the Chicago boys basically went to Chile and uh, absolutely obliterated the place. And uh, and it was their economic experiment, if you like. And to a lesser degree, the, the people of the United States have been subject to that economic experiment, as have the people here in the UK. Because remember... Uh, Reaganomics and and Margaret Thatcher, Reaganomics were listening uh, to Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys as much as Margaret Thatcher was. So the Thatcher-Reagan revolution, uh, if you like, has not been uh, helpful uh, to society. And we're just picking the They sowed the seed, and we're just harvesting that crop now, basically. How does the U.S. look? Well, the U.S. has got its problems. Uh, The resilience of the people uh, will mean that uh, they will begin to start working. Well, they'll be forced to start working these problems through. And let's just hope this time that throughout the years, as you just said, guys, you know, throughout the – we've always picked the wrong change. We've always picked, it's not that the right economics weren't, were there and they were there for the taking. It's just that the neoliberal voice or the neoclassical voice got funded. That's the key point. You know, the bankers uh, know, which, they know which horse to back and they know which one is going to deliver the most spoils. So now it's about the people uh, beginning to unpick this. Yes, it's thorny and yes, it's patience testing and yes, you've got to do the work. But it's about them now saying, well, no, we've understood that this hasn't worked. So where from here? My suggestion would be to start picking a different economics.
0: We're hitting on a really important point. It's the people taking responsibility for creating their own reality. And I think this plays into one of our another questions that we have is what is the role of citizen journalism in building this new society? Can people around us move from being consumers and and buying into the narratives that society tells them to buy into is there a way to actually start creating our own stories and creating our own narratives and figuring out the directions that that we personally want to move into instead of just buying into other people's stories?
3: I think it's a brilliant question, Seth. And uh, I'd say this. We have just begun, uh, we as a Western civilization, in my view anyway, something I'd call the, the great devolution. And the great devolution is a intuitive understanding that the moral authority, the vortex at the the heart of centralized power doesn't actually deliver anything. Uh, And if it did we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd all be getting on happily with our lives. So the devolution is a devolution of power across Western civilization in my view. The question is how do we begin to enact that? How do we start thinking in a different way? Well. When you don't have currency, uh, i.e., money, your the, the, the fundamental human currency is story. Uh, it started with cavemen painting pictures on walls, and it has helped. Story and sense of humour have helped people through the most uh, horrific times in their life, provided that the narrative is truthful and it and it brings solace. So, citizen journalism is absolutely imperative. And in the film, what we say. And we make the parallel between Gutenberg's printing press and the internet. Uh, And we say, you know, that back in the day, the spiritual gatekeepers could act as agents between the congregation and God, and then suddenly, good old Gutenberg tipped up with his cracking great press and printed vernacular translations of the Bible and handed it out. And suddenly, these gatekeepers, religious gatekeepers and royal elite, were no longer necessary. Well, you're seeing exactly the same thing out with the Internet, and it's very, very difficult to control. And what the Internet can do, and hopefully Four Horsemen and uh, podcasts like this and the work that you guys are doing, is the citizen journalism necessary to be able to inform the public about the well, the truth, fundamentally. It pays a huge part, and people have to tell their stories, and they have to voice their concerns. And I think that they will. And I think that they'll do it in in a way that isn't, you know, shouty, angry, and conspiratorial, but in a way that allows other people to uh, uh, take solace. Everyone thinks, you know, it's just them uh, suffering alone. And, of course, it is. Uh, And this is one of the tactics. It's hide and conquer. And when people come together and when we start mobilizing the silent majority, you start to have a very, very
2: different society. And how do you see your film energizing people. What, what do you think as someone who sees your film and hears these economists talking about the grand injustices that are playing out because of the way the economic system is ordered or you know maybe they listen to one of our podcasts and you know really feel motivated to take action and we try to tie a lot of the things we talk about into taking action but what steps do you think that people can take in their own lives to start uh, addressing these issues?
3: It's really really simple and one of the things that we certainly didn't do with, with the film is say at the end of it, you know, on the last card, uh, sign up to this petition, write to your politician, all this stuff that has been, I mean, it's had its role to play, but the, the results really over the last however many years just well, it hasn't worked, has it? So the film leaves people with the moral obligation because I think that signing a petition and or writing to a politician leaves people with a false sense of security, really. It leaves people with hope. And hope's a false friend when it comes down to those things. Because guess what? Uh, no one else is dealing with it. You've got to deal with it. You've got to go and tell your story. You've got to re-engage. You can't do the ostrich thing. The apathy is, I think Donald Rue says, that this is frozen violence. Uh, and you know, when that explodes, then you start to see the civil unrest and all the rest of it. Well, both extremes are no good. Civil unrest is no good. And, and apathy isn't any good. The pendulum has to kind of hit the middle. And that pendulum being in the middle is the educated, self-educated, incidentally, which again is the Internet's brilliance, self-educated. Resourceful entrepreneurial type who can navigate these issues, not sign a petition and hope that someone else is going to do it for you. Because, guess what? It's no one else is doing it for you. We have to re engage. And I think that uh, a lot of students now going through university, going into university, and leaving university are aware of this. I think that they're getting politically. Uh, involved again and you know one of the, the, the criticisms say politically is that everyone says oh well there's such apathy because no one's thinking anymore therefore no one's voting and my view is well everyone or a lot more people are thinking now that, and that's why they're not voting because frankly there's nothing worth voting for and no one worth voting for you know in, in short it's about this re-engaging process
0: I guess the key question is where are we
7: going from here?
8: We're in the middle of the most volatile trading range I've ever seen. This has been an amazing experience. There's panic at the bottom, there's hope at the top, and we just keep going up and down. And you know what it is. It's not about the jobs numbers tomorrow or anything like that at all. It's all about Europe. Europe's a ticking bomb. We're trying to defuse it before it blows up. Sometimes when you're trying to defuse a bomb, you make it blow up because you defuse it the wrong way. This is very, very dangerous surgery. And every morning in America, we wake up and we look at the headlines. We find out whether they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing in Europe and the markets respond. All we can do is watch and wait and hope they figure it out.
7: I was actually a Reagan Republican and I did not realize that the downfall of the US economy began in 1980 when Ronald Reagan broke the back of the um, air traffic control strike. He basically ended. Uh, the role of labor as a counterbalance to management in the United States. Uh, I think the United States right now is much more desperate than people realize. We're at 22% unemployment on our way to 30%. We are at 16% below the poverty line on our way to 30%. There is no question in my mind that this is going to be a very dark winter in the United States. Uh, and unless the government restores its own integrity and starts paying attention to the public interest rather than to the special interests. Uh, I believe that we will have a form of revolution, initially nonviolent, but with the potential to become violent.
8: Well, that's really hard to say. Markets are very bad at pricing this kind of thing because the best thing that can happen in Europe is it stops being a problem. The worst thing that can happen is it blows up and we're burned beyond recognition. So it's completely asymmetrical.
5: I believe within perhaps two to three weeks, we will have... A meltdown in sovereign debt, which will produce a meltdown across the European banking system. We're not just talking about a relatively small Belgian bank. We're talking about the largest banks in the world, the largest banks in Germany, the largest banks in France. That will spread. It will spread to the United Kingdom in part through sovereign debt problems in Ireland it will spread everywhere because the global financial system is so interconnected they they are each count all those banks are counterparties to every significant bank in the United States and in Britain and in Japan
4: and around the world uh, Lord,
5: is he exaggerating, Lord Myers? I,
4: I wish I could give a, a more cheerful uh, complexion, but we're on the verge of a, of a perfect storm. Uh, a number of European countries cannot raise money. Uh, banks are therefore increasingly worried about the default. Therefore, people won't lend money to banks, and therefore banks won't lend money to business. So something has to be done, and has to be done substantially across the whole of Europe. If you do it individually, country by country, you should simply shift the focus from one country or one bank to another. That's why in October 2008, we obliged all the major UK banks to increase their capitalization.
8: We're often accused journalists of being apocalyptic, but this is an apocalypse, isn't it? Let's say it only has a 20% probability, but that 20% is so horrible that there are a lot of people who just want to get to the sidelines and stay there. Markets have no idea how to price this. If you've got any courage at all,
7: I have to say that on the one hand, I really admire New York City and what it tries to do, but on the other hand, it's the it's the state police capital of the world. Uh, New York arrests more people for marijuana than anywhere else on the planet. Uh, they can now shoot down airplanes and uh, do all kinds of intrusive surveillance. I think the New York City police have on the one hand been very well managed and on the other hand have gotten out of control at lower levels. If we have a soccer mom burn herself to death somewhere in here it will move the country to the streets my personal hope is that a general nonviolent strike will be used to force the issue of electoral reform
9: okay well thanks very much there Robert David Steele political analyst and former intelligence officer thanks again
0: you're listening to the extra environmentalist today we're talking with ross ashcroft of the four horsemen talked a little bit about disengaging from your current society. It seems to me like you're talking about like a kind of a fundamental change in the way people think and the way that people react to their society and the way that e- that even students are even brought up and learning about their society. Do you see a, a specific change in people? Is there a specific kind of person that reacts more strongly to this message than others Are people that are more ingrained in this message, less likely to, to give up on their society? Are, are younger people like, say, Justin and myself, who are just finishing their formal education and, and becoming more professional, are, they, are these people more likely to be engaged in the message that you bring?
3: Totally. And the reason for that is that it's necessity that you're engaged because, you know, it's not going to be plain sailing. You're not a baby boomer. You weren't born in 1948. You weren't born when all the graphs of economic growth and you know home ownership and, and um, economic indicators, all those graphs were going up at that time, and they're not now. You've got to adopt a more pioneering attitude. So you guys leaving uni uh, or, or formal education and going into the world, you've got to go in with your eyes wide open. There are going to be people uh, within communities who are... You know, pillars of the community really stand up. Now, what I'm not saying is that we're going to have a Barack Obama or you know, a new great leader, but I think that within communities there will be great builders and and they are leaders in their own way. But they get people together and they say, Do you know what? We don't trust uh, anyone else to look after, for instance, our pension or for instance, our uh, homeowning uh, loan scheme, so therefore, we're going to do it. And this is what I mean about the devolution. So people like you, and, and, and I'm hugely hopeful about this. Yes, there are going to be teething problems. Yes, the, you know there will be the occasional cock-up on the way and, and things won't go quite uh, to plan. But it means that that society's starting to move back in a direction where um, community becomes... Well, we move from this globalised dream or nightmare to a localised community that is self-sustaining and really has strong relationships and strong bonds. Because, as we say in the film, you know, it's not about money. It's not about accruing more and more and more and more. What it's actually about are human relationships. Uh, And it's about trust and it's about love and it's about meaning and it's about purpose and it's about all those things. I mean, they're the really important things. And your generation and, and the generations behind you coming through Uh, Phil, certainly me, the the production team on this film, and uh, Colonel Will Cursons, fill him full of hope. He says that the one thing that he feels gives him hope over the cynicism or or despair are his students because he doesn't see the desire in them to go to Wall Street. A lot of these guys have seen how money has really corrupted an awful lot of people. A lot of the generations coming through in a post-consumer society want a different life, a different quality of life, and that's hugely encouraging.
2: And that's so different from the way our societies have functioned and the way our political systems have emphasized what it means to have human progress for so long. And for example, in the United States, we saw in the debt ceiling debate this classic conflict between the left and the right, where the left wanted to maintain these social programs while raising taxes, and the right wanted to cut taxes and cut spending on these, you know, quote, entitlement programs. And it seems like both sides have a point of validity to them. But the issue is that American politics and politics around the world has really changed, especially in the United States. It was always a system where a representative was elected to deliver jobs, you know, infrastructure, bridges, whatever it was, federal benefits back to their home district. And now yeah. the American political system is failing. Because the dynamic has changed and what's happening is the people that everyone's electing is going to Washington and having to decide how to cut things. And it's really hard to go back to your representatives and, or go back to your constituents and say, you know, I'm the one who cut your hospital, right? It's really hard to do that. And it seems uh, the odd part is that the ideologies are only becoming more hardened. And so we'll play this last clip here.
3: We're seeing the bankruptcy of both traditions of the left and the right. On the left, the idea that the state can ameliorate the effects of capitalism and deliver prosperity for all and secure the the, the poor is just no longer sustainable. On the right, the idea that unrestricted free markets and the operation of pure self-interest can also lift all boats is equally utopic and equally a product of a type of uh, fantasy. And what's interesting is now both of those are broken and gone. Um, Nobody is really creating an ideology for the 21st century. Nobody's creating a new patterning.
2: Do you think it's possible to hope for a new ideology at this point that can be enacted on a national level? Or is it really about people starting to understand that government and and politics as it was is not going to be there for us in the future?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that at a national level, it, it's really tough because what we've got the, the spectre of is protection. We know what happens when when uh, that rears its ugly head. So I think we have to divorce this huge thinking, that you know, national level and all the rest of it, from, um, the, from man in the street and, and what's happening in his or her community. This left and right debate, I've never, well, certainly over the last 10 years, I haven't really understood it. I think it's glib. It's like saying, oh, capitalism is socialism. You know, is it the case that we human beings have been put on this planet and, um, you know, we can only choose, there, there's only a two-horse two horse race or there's only two choice? you know, it's either left or it's right. Or, or, The point is we come back to economics here, don't we? Because unless you've got your economics right, you forget the politics. I mean, famous quote about it's the economy, stupid. Well, it is the economy, but globally it's the economy. And when you come down to it, it's the tax system. It's a tax system that encourages um, speculation in land and property and um, a tax system that takes off the working man, his hard-earned wealth. And that, that isn't the, the... Well, it's certainly not the view of the founding fathers of America, you know. And, and it's certainly not the view of a lot of the, the really economists who have passed through the world. You can't get your politics right and then get your economics right. You've got to get your economics right and then you get your politics right. I mean, think of it. If Barack Obama had his economics right, uh, or any leader really got it right and wasn't so short-termist, then they'd never get voted out of power. You, you, they'd be in there for life.
0: Yeah, that's the short-term view of all politicians, isn't it? That The four-year or the, the short-term exactly. time where they have in, in office before they get voted out again.
3: Exactly. And, and you know, the point, I think the saying goes that a politician thinks about the next election, whereas a statesman thinks about the next generation. Now, uh, my generation, your generation, the generation behind your generation, we've got to step up a bit, guys. You've got to leave this place qualitatively better than than when you tipped up. And there's a good reason for that as well, by the way. You know, the the self-serving individual, it hasn't worked, as I've said before. So dedicating yourself to a greater cause or a bigger cause is a far more fulfilling way of uh, of spending your days, in my view. And I think that the legacy that that you leave is... um, it's a healthier way to live, or, or and even spiritually and, and, and psychologically, a better way to live. If um, if you put something down, which actually makes it makes it a bit of a difference for future generations. So this left versus right is, well, it's obsolete now, really. I, I mean, can you tell the difference between the two?
0: Absolutely not. More and more, I, I just I just see the policies of our current president reflecting the ones of our last, and they're you know they're from two different parties, and they're supposed to be very diametrically opposed, but all they do is prop each other up. It's it's the A all yeah. over again, you know.
3: It's like WWF wrestling, isn't it? So what? So so what's the problem? The problem is the economics.
0: So the the problem is the far thinking, the the long term thinking that we just talked about. This is a question we kind of ask, we we bat around back and forth on this show a lot. Is one, how to get people to think long-term, and then if you take a step back from the now and you think about what... This situation is going to look like, and then what the future is going to look like, and people in the future looking back on our situation now and seeing the tumultuous times that we're going through and the growing pains that are our species as a whole and our planet as a whole. Where do you see the future of humanity going in, you know, ten years and twenty years? Where do you see us ending up? What sort of place is it going to be when humanity finally figures out all these little uh, quirks in our nature and uh, and figures out the correct path for our planet
1: of
3: course we've got to stay light and bright we really do and um, this is going to sound glib and i don't mean it we've got to understand that this whole thing that we've got at the moment is a game because quite frankly if you started taking all this seriously you go mad and and if you look at the level of stress in the western world now and the look at the level of disease disease or you look at the level of relationship breakdowns and all the indicators that we don't need alcoholism drug abuse etc The question, the big question that you're asking, I think, is how do you start to reverse that? How do you start to get those indicators and get those uh, indices down or getting them going in the right direction? You know, I'm sorry to be really boring, but you've got to come back to how you organize your society economically. Because, you see, people are both reasonable and good. Generally, I mean, of course, there are crackpots in the world and, and there are loonies and all the rest of it. And there are some people who go and do heinous things. And yeah, there is an element of that society. But if you take, the, if you take the, the view that most people are reasonable and good, then what follows is, OK, if that's the case, how do we create an economic system, a tax system, a uh, society that allows their inherent good to flourish? And that's called renaissance, right? When human beings in a time of darkness, suddenly a society works out how to get it right. And what happens is there's this huge uh, kind of uh, outflow, overflow of human potential. And you can't have that. And I'm not being overly uh, utopian or, or, or panglossian. What I'm saying is you can't have that if, if man on the street is constantly being persecuted for doing productive work. It just it can't happen because you spend your days being beaten back and being beaten back by predatory finance, by a predatory capitalist system, and we will never progress. We're like gibbons who, who trash a tree right, and then, then, then move on to the next tree. It, and, but the point is this. We've got, we've got a world. And I'm not sure how, where we're going to go next once we've trashed this one. So we've got to kind of get out of this Gibbon mentality um, and get to a, a more enlightened view. And I, I don't know, I mean, the, 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 certainly the knowledge is there in the world. It is definitely there to do it. It's just whether the, there is a, an audience out there. And this is key. If for a renaissance to take place or for, a, for, for this rejuvenation, this renewal to take place, what you, you can't just have a bunch of people doing it and putting the solutions forward or the potential solutions forward, right? You also need an audience out there to be able to pull that out. You have to have two things. It can't just be a bunch of people running around saying, you know, I've got the answer. There has to be the demand. You have to demand it.
2: One of the ways that I think we can help to extrapolate this out you know air these grievances is Marshall McLuhan once said that comedy is important because with every joke told a grievance is aired and you've done a bit of stand-up comedy yourself and I'm wondering uh, if there's a way to, to make economic collapse a bit lighter and uh, You know, do you work economic collapse into your comedy routines? And I mean, the whole thing is just so absurd that we as humans choose to organize ourselves in this way. And there is a lot of humor in that. But how can you find the balance between taking this predicament seriously and also bringing a certain lightness to it?
3: And that's the key point. And, you know, as I said before about this is a game, this whole thing is a charade, really. It's, It's moving the deck chairs and all the other cliches. From a comedy point of view, you have to keep it light and bright and simple. You, you know, you can't uh, mock or, uh, or or snigger at the things that men hold dear, not least, you know, them going forward and trying to make a living for themselves or make a life for themselves. I mean, you can't do that. But unless we laugh at it, you're in a whole world of trouble, aren't you? I mean, I'm from Liverpool originally. And the reason why Scousers, which is what we call uh, people from Liverpool, and in fact, most people in dockyard towns across the, the UK, Glasgow, uh, Northeast, Liverpool, they've all got a brilliant sense of humour. And the reason why they've got a brilliant sense of humour is because they're permanently, they haven't got any money. Uh, so the only thing that they can do is, is alleviate the dire situation that they're in with laughter. Uh, and, you know, and what happens out of these economic collapses, we get brilliant music, we get excellent comedy, we get really uh, uh, kind of brilliant plays, great screenplays. Um, because what happens when the money isn't about, and you can't go out to Target or whatever the consumer, cheap consumer stores are in, in the US and buy the new shirt or buy the new dress. Or you can't escape in that way. You ask yourself more fundamental questions. And um, and that's what comedy is all about. Comedy is about truth, isn't it, really? And laughing. The laughs of, the laughs of recognition. And the laughs of, God, we've really cocked this up. How do we get out of it? Right.
0: <laughs> that's very true. And
3: by the way, we we really have cocked this up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so it's up to you guys to get us out of it. I'm done.
0: <laughs> Excellent, Ross. Thank you so much. Uh, when can we expect the, the film to be coming out? And for someone listening to this interview or reading more of your material, uh, how can they get involved with the movie?
3: It would be stupid of us as a production crew to, uh, to talk in the movie about how debt has uh, pushed the Western global economy to the brink and then go to a distributor uh, with four horsemen, and um, say to the distributor, "Okay, yeah, you know, you f- find you take the film, um, and what distributors do traditionally is front-load the film with lots of debt, <laughs> and um, we, can't, you know, it would have been totally hypocritical of us to, to do that, not least because it's an employee-owned picture, and um, those guys who've worked so tirelessly on it want uh, uh, some kind of compensation for the time and effort that they've put in." So, our distribution model's a bit different, and what we want to do is get people to come forward and and screen this film to their friends, family, people who they think that they'll be interested. The silent majority, the guys that we're talking about, the citizen journalists, the people who can organise a Tupperware-type party and do a film screening for it, and what we can do is is, uh, we can get them screening packs, posters, uh, a a little, I suppose, distribution pack, uh, and then they can start taking this message out, talking about it, watching the film. Uh, and then having a, a chat and debate about it. And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, guys, about storytelling and stories, you know. People want to be able to sit in the same room, have what we call a social object, i.e. the film, have it or this podcast as a social object, because it evokes, hopefully, uh, people's thinking and it makes them uh, talk to people in a, in a different way than, oh, you know, the traffic's bad, or, oh, God, uh, are you going to that party? Or, you know, all the, all the humdrum of, of everyday life. So. What we'd like to do is get it into as many hands as possible. Now there will be theater releases, and yes, it's um shortlisted at the moment for lots of uh, film festivals um, so we'll see how that goes. We're just finishing it, we're just mastering the sound um, and what we'd like to do is is um be uh, it, it would be far more fulfilling for us. Uh, to get it into people's hands and and have their feedback immediately. Our value, let's say, barometer of success isn't if Fox uh, movies phone us and say we've got to be a distribution deal. That, that, that's not what it's
2: about. Yeah, well, I, I know I'm definitely down here in Vancouver to host a screening, so I uh, can yeah, get quite a few people together for that. Do you have a website that you can plug? Let me plug it. So it's
3: uh, fourhorsemanfilm.com. Um, you can go on there. You can also demand it in your city. Uh, you can go to the renegadeconomist.com, uh, which is where all the clips that we've, uh, which haven't you know, gone into the film, are, are there. But that's making up a really good resource for uh, economists. Uh, even if you don't think you're an economist, even if you didn't read economics at university, I bet you're an economist. So go there and listen to some of the, what the guys there are saying. And let's try and get uh, economics uh, to, to be, uh, you know, really cool again because it's such a great subject. I didn't read it, remember, you know, I, 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 I didn't do it at uni. I just remember that the, the stuff they taught at uni was so dull, oh, turgid rubbish. And then when <laughs> I really started to get down to it and really understand it, I thought this is the most brilliant subject in the world because it's got everything. It's got psychology, it's got human behavior, it's got natural resources, it's got everything that you want. And it, and, and when you start looking at how we humans really function, we're, we're nuts, frankly. So as soon as that becomes cool again, and it will, we're off. we have a proper debate and globally, and um, and that that they're really interesting times. I, I, I'm really optimistic, by the way, guys. You know, I, I think that we're um I think it's a good time to be alive, um, and I think the work you're doing, you know, over uh, in the U.S. Uh, and in Canada, and, and the work we're doing here in London. And, and by the way, you know, I just give you an example. Some guy, brilliant guy, called us the other day from Chile, and he said, "I love you. I love the idea of your film." Um, it needs to be in Spanish, and I said, "Oh God, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, on the huge list of things that, uh, that 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 we've got to do, we've also got to get the film subtitled into all these different languages." And I said, "Yeah, I know, mate. I know it's it's tough. We're going to do that." He said, "Well, don't worry, I'll do it for you." And these people are coming out, and they they're saying, "How do we do? How do we help? We know it's independently funded. How how do we get involved? How do we get this message out?" And remember, the Chileans, as we talked about in this interview, they've been really at the forefront of feeling the full brunt uh, of neoliberal economics um, and this guy you know he's, he's translated the trailer it's now on the uh, renegade economist uh, website and it's also on fourhorseman.com and it's all tra- it's all subtitled into spanish and these people come out and they say how can we help and that's why i'm so optimistic
2: That wraps up our conversation with ross of the four horsemen on such a wide range of topics all the way from economics capitalism you know is is capitalism failing is it getting stronger all, all sorts of things so What did you think of the interview, Seth?
0: I think it would be amazing if we had a chance to make a movie, Justin. We got to sit down with people like Max Kaiser and Simon Johnson and just throw out these big old questions and say, what do you think about this? And then record them and then make a movie from it. And then go on podcasts and talk to people like us about it. I think that would be a great gig. He is living life.
2: Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating how he he spoke about being a student in land management and wanting to be in agriculture. And it's so bizarre to think you're studying agriculture and land management and now you're you're making a movie about financial collapse? How does that happen? And it really is because so much of our food system and the land that it's tied to requires these tremendous financial inputs and financial manipulation that is just like any other aspect of our economy.
0: It's interesting how people from all different sorts of aspects of life just get drawn into this kind of whirlwind of all these different kind of collapse and degrowth organizations that just kind of seem to be sprouting up all over the place. People are just pulled into it because it's something that resonates so strongly with them that they can't even relate to anything else in their life they have to divert energy and they have to divert their time to making these projects viable options for the future these are education projects that are going to mean so much to people when when this stuff starts happening And as we see you know with this this occupy wall street stuff and, and you know all the mainstream media just grasping to try to find people that can kind of explain what these people are feeling. This movie that he's making is a perfect example of how just regular people who are just, you know, studying at, at Royal Agricultural College, and before you know it, you're, you're making movies interviewing the biggest names in the in the collapse world.
2: Well, how did, like, how did you get into talking about economic collapse? Because for me, I was just uh, someone working at a utility company working with coal and solar panels and things, and I was like, you know what? All this stuff is a little bit more fragile than everyone realized. There's pretty short and small barrier between 1950s electricity in your home in 1850s, you're living with your sad iron that you have to heat over a, a fire just to iron your clothes.
0: For me, I think I watched an Alex Jones YouTube clip where he, he demonstrated the Republicans as one side of the A and the Democrats as the other side of the A, just propping each other up. And for me, that just like clicked something in my head and I was like, wait a second, he's right. This is all just a charade. These people all want the same things for us. And we are just buying into their, their game, their nonsense that they just throw at us all the time. And for me, that clicked something and I just I just wanted to know more and, and I had friends like you, Justin, who were like, hey, read this book, hey, read this book, read this, listen to this podcast, go over here and do this. And then it just kind of snowballed from that and that's where I am now.
2: And it's amazing the roads that you go down when you start learning and, and reading about all of this stuff and it just changes every way that you look at the world and, and everything that you do. But perhaps another time, I would have focused 100% of my efforts on you know, developing solar panel technology and, and moving materials forward. But now that narrative is starting to expose itself as not the most useful way to apply time. And uh, I was just listening to Charles Eisenstein, who was on our last podcast, he was on uh, Mike Rupert's radio show. And he was saying that as he meets young people in this world today, 20 years ago, they were all excited to get out and to be bankers and to go and be engineers that were in mining and aerospace and building planes. But you know what? people aren't as excited about that anymore because it doesn't have the same kind of future prospects that it does. So now we're forming a different mindset, but that's what education is all about. We always had education confused with something that we did simply to prepare to get a job in the last few years. And now we're starting to understand that education is about true education is about obtaining a new mindset, a new way of looking at the world. And that's what the extra environmentalist is all about.
0: That is true, Justin. It is what the extra environmentalist is all about. And sometimes attaining that new mindset means that you have have to throw other mindsets under the bus and that can be hard and it can make people around you kind of question your mindset and kind of question where you're coming from and that's okay and sometimes you just have to be brave and you have to stick to your guns and just know that there's other people out there who feel the same way and and these movements that we've seen across the world are just that much more justification that your ideas and your beliefs have have merit and that that the mainstream narrative is not the one that necessarily is true.
2: Yeah, and you see it now when even the talking heads on MSNBC, CNN, we've seen it quite a bit recently on the BBC with traders coming on and you know saying that it's all going to collapse, it's all going to fall apart and suddenly even the networks uh, we relied on to provide us with this prepackaged mainstream narrative of infinite growth and economic stability uh, that really enriched that top 1% that Occupy Wall Street is, is going after. It's even breaking down. People are getting on the air and, and flipping out because they see how uh, ridiculous everything that they've been talking about really is. And I saw a clip recently Uh, that really demonstrates how ridiculous it's all become. During one of Obama's recent speeches, uh, the whole presidential seal fell off his podium. And we'll we'll play (laughs) that clip right here.
5: We cannot sustain. Oops. Was that my? uh... Oh, goodness. That's all right. All of you know who I am. but I'm sure there's somebody back there that's really nervous right now.
2: It's hilarious when you're watching on TV and there's people protesting in your street, stock market's tanking, and your president speaking in front of a podium that can't even use enough adhesive to stick on the presidential seal. That says to me that you're living in a collapsing nation. And it makes you wonder if the next step is Greece, where you have people occupying buildings that are government ministries and basically an all-out revolution. So Justin, you've just got back from New York
0: and you went to Pittsburgh as well. Tell me what it's like being on the ground at these Occupy Wall Street movements. Are they as as crazy and as violent as the news media makes them out to be? Are they are people rioting in the street and getting bloodied up by the cops
2: well so i was in pittsburgh and i get out of the airplane and there's no taxis at the airport and eventually one rolls up and the guy is like well let's take a few fares and we were like um okay so we hop in the taxi and then he's like uh well my tank's on empty right now let's pull over and get a little bit bit of gasoline so the taxi driver runs in pays, and then runs out, throws the nozzle into the car, and it clicks almost instantly. And I say, we're not in that big of a hurry. We, we can just, uh, you know, go ahead and fill it up. And he's like, well, I don't have that much. Uh, well, I, I don't want to keep you guys waiting, so I'll just hop back in the car. The guy was, was waiting on our fares to buy gasoline for the taxi cab. On the way into town, he actually put the cab into neutral and turned the engine off just to make it into town. Really? Yeah, unbelievable.
0: He was waiting on your fares to get the gas?
2: Yeah, it's crazy. Unbelievable. I, I did not <laughs> I did not expect that. But then uh, from Pittsburgh, uh, I was at a sustainability conference, and then I went to Harrisburg, which is the first town to really experience the full wrath of the municipal defaults that are starting to roll in. And they built an incinerator that was like five times their yearly budget, and the incinerator failed. So they're having to declare bankruptcy. And so I went to the state capitol building at Penn. Pennsylvania. And all around the state capitol building, shops were closed and buildings were for lease. I mean, it was like, or a good few blocks within the state capitol building. It was just everything for sale or for lease. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like that.
0: Now, were you just there for fun or was this some kind of organized trip? What were you there for?
2: Oh, I was driving on the way to New York City to go and check out Occupy Wall Street. And so Harrisburg was on the way and I made it into New York. And as soon as I got there, KMO and Olga from the the Sea Realm podcast sent me an email and said, hey, you gotta get out to occupy Wall Street first thing in the morning because they're gonna clear out the park. The Mayor Bloomberg is gonna clean it out. So got a few hours of sleep, headed out to the park, and volunteers had taken all night and cleaned up the park. It was incredible. I got over there and they were sweeping it down because the mayor said it was too dirty and they were going to clean it out. Well, they'd spent 18 hours, worked through the entire night, cleaning the place up. And then 6,000 plus people turned out to the park. So many that the city couldn't clear them out and arrest them. You're saying that everyone cleaned up the whole place so that they wouldn't get arrested? Exactly. Everyone cleaned up the whole park so that they wouldn't get kicked out for cleaning like the mayor wanted to do.
0: Was the mayor able to kick everybody out anyway?
2: No, they didn't. There were more than 6,000 people there and that's way more people than uh, the city could arrest so they successfully did it and then the people who were there organized a march marched out into the streets and disrupted the morning commute there in the financial district and it was crazy what would happen is the protesters would run out into the street sit down block traffic police would finally move up and maybe catch a few of them but the majority of people would run down to the next intersection or off into the sidewalk and then they would be anonymous along with the other people who were on the sidewalk and couldn't be hunted down so this went on for about an hour, hour and a half. And at one point, there were about 12 cops who were surrounded by the protesters. And at that point, there were far more protesters than there were cops. And a guy in a brown suit runs out and is yelling at one of the cops because he wasn't doing his job. The guy was so mean that he was yelling at this cop saying, you're not doing your job. You should do a better job. I couldn't believe it. Well, the
0: banker just ran out there and just yelled at him?
2: Yeah, yelled at the police officer. Well, all the protesters encircled the policemen, and I actually saw the breakdown of the rule of law. The police lost control of the situation. If this was a violent group of protesters, it could have been crazy. But the protesters chanted that they were peaceful, which let the police know that they didn't have anything to worry about. But this was so stressful because cameras were pointed all around the crowd. Everyone held up their cameras in a unison were chanting. Oh And it makes you think about the power of the internet in this global revolution. If everyone didn't have these phones with cheap cameras or all of the incredible digital devices, police could get away with brutality. But now that everything they do is being filmed.
0: That's a pretty powerful message when when the crowds are just chanting that over and over again. It makes the police officers think. I'm I'm assuming that if if, if I'm a police officer and I'm hearing that the whole world is watching me and I know that everything I do is going to be going live to YouTube, I'm not going to hit that guy or I might think twice about hitting that guy because my job's on the line if the mayor sees that or you know like the higher up officials the political officials see that I'm beating people up I'm not going to be out on the streets anymore I'm not going to be you know a police officer for very long.
2: Right and so then it actually got so stressful that a police officer broke down crying and I never expected to see anything like that. He
0: just that. started crying in the middle of the, of the crowd?
2: Yeah he was there in the middle of the crowd and he, he What did people say? Cry. Well I was a little disappointed in the reaction of the crowd. Everyone started chanting. It was an unbelievable scene, and the whole morning was filled with stuff like this, but that was one of the most poignant because the rule of law actually broke down. The police couldn't control the crowd unless they resorted to violence, but the whole world was watching and they couldn't shoot anyone. They had to accept that they had lost control of the streets.
0: I talked to one of my friends who lives in Rome where, as you might know, there's about 200,000 people that converged on one of the squares there and was just a lot of people that were rioting and actually breaking and burning cars and breaking into shops and looting and burning grocery stores and did about like a few million euros of damage there. And the people there, they're just just angry because they're just breaking stuff and destroying things and the police officers, what she told me, the police officers were not really doing much to stop that and to curb it. It's, It's that kind of stuff that can give these whole kind of movements and revolutionary activities bad names that the stuff that's that's making people's lives worse instead of using the the peaceful protests that gandhi and and martin luther king are famous for they they do the things that were that are breaking things and and destroying things and that forced governments to react in violent ways to stop these people and i think there's a very large there's a very large there's a lot of anger where that could make these types of activities possible that people are just so upset and so angry that these kind of just bubble over into violence but I think these movements have to be really really careful about these kind of things just announce those kind of activities as not being part of their peaceful movement
2: exactly and it's a, it's a significant challenge but I've really been impressed with the way that Occupy Wall Street has handled itself thus far and as long as it can prevent being infiltrated by perhaps even groups in the government or in businesses that want it to become violent so that there is a crackdown as long as the movement can resist that then it'll be a really powerful force in the very near future as countries in Europe default and everyone realizes that our economic system really is failing. And then these people can rise up and really make serious demands on reforms, very serious demands on reforms that may not have been taken seriously without people in the streets.
0: And you see it in the news media, you see it in politics, people talking about it, the candidates in the Republican debates for the President of the United States are talking about it slowly and slowly, it's becoming harder and harder to ignore. I mean, the images are just so powerful and just the amount of people that are showing up to these events and people like us just talking about it makes the momentum that much harder to ignore. Riding that wave of, of momentum, the extra environmentalist has been has been gaining more and more listeners and gaining more and more people listening to the things that Justin and I have to talk about.
2: We're really excited to have our first affiliates. First of all, we have an online affiliate over at the great team at CollapseNet, the site that's built around uh, Mike Rupert's documentary that came out about a year and a half ago now. Big thank you to the team over at CollapseNet. They're doing such awesome work over there, networking everyone together, making sure that if you're aware, you can find other people in your community who are aware of these issues and you guys can start planning about how to handle the serious changes that are in the very immediate future. So thanks to the team at CollapseNet. Also, we are now on the physical airwaves with our first two uh, radio affiliates. Wow, we're on the radio! Uh, Yeah, so on the radio. You don't just have to download us anymore. If you're in Vancouver, British Columbia, you can tune in to CITR101. 1.9 fm and we're going to be on thursdays in the afternoon so we'll have a, an official time to report on soon but we're going to list all this on our website and we're also going to be on cjfm up in powell river british columbia which is really awesome so we'll we'll be reaching all along the coast of uh, british columbia right now and if you know of a radio station community radio station that's interested in playing the podcast We're gonna be taking a lot of our episodes and cutting them down to about 60 minutes. So it's gonna be a really easy fit into uh, programs, but don't worry, that doesn't mean we're gonna be changing the format of the show. We're still gonna have the regular free flowing episodes online for anyone to check out and download for the full form extended discussions. So really excited about our online affiliates at CollapseNet and really excited Uh, about having our first radio affiliates. But get out there and let your community radio stations know that you want to hear The Extra Environmentalist on your radio station and spread the good word.
0: Yeah, how exciting is that? We're on the radio, Justin. And if you want to hear more of The Extra Environmentalist, you can come visit us at our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check out our Facebook page where there's all sorts of discussions where Justin and I post all kinds of fun links where we have listeners posting up all kinds of comments and telling us who they wanna hear us interview and all kinds of interesting, interesting things. Uh, We also have our Twitter, which is XEnvironmental on the Twitter feeds, loveliness out there. And we have a voicemail where you can leave a voicemail message for us and we will play it on the show and Justin will give you a mixtape of all the music that we don't get to play on the podcast.
2: That's right, and you can reach that voicemail now in two ways. You can reach it by calling 919-701-9872, or you can reach us on Skype at The Extra Environmentalist. So just shoot us a voicemail there, and you'll be able to have the voicemail played on an upcoming episode. If you're an international listener, you don't have to spend money by calling a U.S. number. You can reach us on Skype as well. Yes, you can. And Alex from Reading, Pennsylvania, did just that. He gave us a call on our voicemail number and left us a message.
0: Listen to uh, episode twenty-five. Thought it was your best one yet. But I tell you guys, keep up the good work. Uh, content's great. The audio is great forward
1: to hearing some more from you thank
2: you and Alex didn't just leave us a voicemail he also left us a donation so thanks so much Alex for your unbelievably generous donation and we really appreciate that you would throw your hard-earned money our direction for for our podcast so thanks so much it was really really kind of you and if you want to leave a donation for the podcast you can visit our website at extraenvironmentalist.com and click the donate button And you don't just have to leave us a voicemail. As we mentioned before, you can shoot us an email. And Jeff from New Orleans sent us an email just saying he he really enjoyed our podcast and that episode 25 was unbelievable and he was waiting with bated breath for the next one because of the teaser he heard. Well, don't worry, Jeff. It's here. You just heard it. So hopefully it met your expectations. And
0: we also heard from Mark J.
2: From Grinning Planet wrote us and said uh, that we ask great questions. And uh, so thanks for listening, Mark. Also, Steven, uh, thanks so much for listening to our conversation with Dennis McKenna. And you have shown new light on the extra environmentalist as never seen before. You found McLuhan's reference to extra environmentalism in his 1969 interview in Playboy magazine. So because of that, we can now say that Dennis McKenna was correct in saying that Terence McKenna stole the idea from Dennis, who adapted the idea from Marshall McLuhan on being an extra environmentalist, so thanks for for writing in with that. That took some
0: serious research.
2: Some definite detective work, so thanks so much. And then I had a message about episode 20 with Manfred Maxneef from uh, Mandeep in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was saying um, that he thought it was really interesting in talking about scientists and their role in economics. He, he was saying that people making these decisions aren't in, in touch with the world and the economists, but neither are the scientists. He said that the brilliance of the physicists is that they can see patterns and develop a- ideas outside of the typical Wall Street and, and Federal Reserve box, which was really awesome. But the problem with the physicists and scientists in the economic world were that they didn't really understand the full economics and financial theory, which also led them to make bad decisions. But it wasn't really their fault um, as they were given faulty information to create these crazy models. So the whole system was just crazy in the first place. But uh, he was just saying that he completely agrees with uh, what Manfred Neef was saying and that he just wanted to elaborate that was more behind wh- uh, what he said than what we spoke about. Uh, but he also said that you can't get enough of the podcast and it was really eerie. Hearing what Manfred and Max Neef had to say about social unrest erupting across the United States, almost like a spark. And we recorded that interview back in June of this year. And what do you see now? Social unrest erupting across the United States. And it happened so fast, just like Manfred Max Neef said.
0: Max, Manfred Max Neef is a prophet and a scholar. We also heard from Rebecca R. who said that she really loves the skits at the end of our shows. She says, it's like dessert at the end of a difficult discussion, that despite all this confusing media messaging and complicated world collapsing around us, we can always make it make time for some Sean Connery jokes.
2: There will be more Sean Connery jokes
0: in the future, yes. It would be a sad world indeed if we couldn't make Sean Connery jokes.
2: And I also wanted to give a big shout out to KMO of the Sea Realm podcast. Finally got a chance to meet him there in New York City when I came by for a visit. It was so great to finally meet KMO in person after corresponding with him for so many years. And uh, we had a a good time, even though it was very uh, limited, at the Horizons conference there in New York. Um, We got a chance to talk for a bit, but we had a chance to talk even more. On episode number 280 of the Sea Realm podcast, I recapped some of the adventures I've shared here today about my time in New York, and you can check that out on the latest episode of the Sea Realm. So, thanks, KMO. So, thank you
0: to all of our listeners. We really appreciate your great comments, and keep them up.
2: Yeah, let us know how you're feeling. Let us know what you had for dinner. It's, it's great.
0: We like to know what you had for dinner. Uh, I, for one, just had some egg rolls and some rice with vegetables, and they were lovely. So, you know, keep on eating vegetarian, and... Do what's right for the world, or
2: or eat meat, but that's local and sustainable.
0: You know, just go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac.
2: That you yeah, know. that works too. Yeah. Just Who, stuff how, your long face is, is, how long how long are you going to be able to eat a Big Mac for? Seriously, you know, it's get, true. Get, get it's <laughs> it's a miracle. It's a miracle of modern industrial civilization. The the ninety nine cent menu at Wendy's, or did they increase that because of inflation? I don't know. We are the ninety nine cent Big Macs. <laughs> yes. You've been listening to Extra Environmentalist episode number 26. Yeah, we love you. Big heart.
9: Own. Nobody. Mm-hmm. You built a factory out there, good for you, but I want to be clear you moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. Yep. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You uh, were safe in your factory. Because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory and hire someone to protect against this because of the work the rest of us did. Now, look, you built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hump of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes to
1: Next time on The Extra Environmentalist.
10: When you tell someone something that conflicts with their worldview, their immediate reaction an automatic response to the brain is well no that you know that that can't be there's a fear reaction in the amygdala and it's this primitive structure in our brain that's been there from the beginning and people refer to it as sort of the lizard part of the brain and it's there to tell us when we're in danger and you know when you think about it it used to be that as a species we were you know in danger all the time you know, from what is that shadow in the grass is it a predator that could threaten me if you think of this sort of in evolutionary terms well now the amygdala is still there and it's still firing off over threats to our worldview. And we can really react to those sorts of threats almost as dramatically as we do uh, threats to our lives.
1: You're watching... Celebrity in Jeopardy! This is your host, Alex Trebekistan!
0: Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm Alex Trebekistan, your host at Celebrity in Jeopardy! Today we're talking with radio star Alex Jones, his also infamous mother, Alex Jones' mother, and Sean Connery, film star... And James Bond sometimes.
1: Well, well thank you, Alex. It's great to be on uh, Celebrity in Jeopardy. I, I hope to bring out uh, a lot of interesting perspectives on economic collapse here during this program. I gotta say, my currency didn't fail with your mother last night.
0: Thank you, Sean. I appreciate your contribution as always. Today, the categories are... <laughs> Irrational National Debts. Failed Currencies Which Square is Occupied Default Options And Potent Potables
1: Alex Jones, will you start us off? I'll take Occupied Squares for 1,000 Euros
0: Uh, This show is not done in Euros, but we will start with which square is occupied for 1,000
1: By Euros, I meant uh, Euro Meat, as they have in the failing nation of Greece
0: Right, right. So, uh, the question for 1,000. Which famous square in history involved tanks and Chinese people? Alex Jones's mother.
10: Well, I think that
0: that would be the, uh, uh, Tijim and I'm sorry, ma'am, that's not correct. Alex Jones?
1: Everyone in the Occupy Wall Street movement is is either a Bilderberger, a Bloomberger, a Big Mac Burger. They're the Council on Foreign Relations taking the streets as you can see them. Everyone there is a member of the Illuminati.
0: Thank you, Alex, but, uh, please form that answer in a question. Thank you. Sean
1: Connery? Hey, Chewbacca I thought I saw your mother in the square last night.
0: The correct answer was Tiananmen Square. Okay. Alex Jones, the question goes back to you.
1: I'll take uh, rational national debts for uh, 200 ounces of gold.
0: 200 ounces of gold. Right. Uh, That would convert to... 500 American dollars using the 1930s American gold standard. This nation is currently sitting on $14 trillion of national debt. Sean Connery?
1: Your mother's sitting on a lot more than a pile of debt right now.
0: Right. Alex Jones's mother. One time I was sitting on this large bathroom pot Well, there was all sorts of gold in it. Alex had come back from one of his journeys with so much gold that I had to make it into a toilet bowl seat.
1: That was when I came back from Bohemian Grove and they were sacrificing a young virgin to the owl god Moloch. And uh, quite frankly, they didn't need their gold anyways because they they were worshiping the ancient uh, Babylonian god. All the world leaders were there. It was insanity. I tried to sneak in through the fence, but they shot me with rubber bullets
0: oh Alex when's you gonna find a nice lady and just settle down how often must I tell you okay well that that's a great story but no one seemed to get the right answer so uh we will have to announce the right answer which is the United States thank you thank you and it looks like it's going back to Alex Jones, who is now ranting in the corner. There.
1: These vaccines, there—they're coming at the FEMA camps where the the vaccines are. Uh, Alex, uh, I'll, I'll take uh, irrational national debts for for one thousand ounces of gold.
0: Irrational national debts for 100,000 ounces of, na- of gold converts down to 200 on the 1920 sideways gold standard scale. And it looks like it's our daily double. This is an audio clue. The band behind this classic hit shares its name with the continent facing currency collapse. It's the-
1: Sean Connery. That would be the classic 80s rock group, Antarctica. Alex Jones. That would be the ancient 80s rock group, the Illuminati, who are behind all this.
0: It seems that no one has won, and we are now all in negative numbers, much like our economy. And now it's time for Final Jeopardy! The question is, this EU member nation threatens default that could collapse the Euro. Now take your time. Make sure your answer is really good. Think carefully on your answer because you will be paying me right now 30 pounds of gold. Now I don't want to be taking money from the contestants but if you continue with these terrible answers, I'm going to have to tax you mercilessly. So think carefully. Alex Jones, your answer. The FEMA camps. Your answer is the FEMA camps. And how much did you wager, Alex?
1: A stockpile of cans of beans. Two
0: months' supply. Right. Well, thank you, Alex. Alex Jones' mother. Hi, Jeopardy! Alex Jones' mother, why is your accent so strange? I uh, don't know where I come from sometimes. Greece is my answer. Greece is is right. How much did you wager, Alex Jones' mother? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Greece is what I used in the kitchen last night to bake the big cake I make. That answer is 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 wrong, Alex Jones's mother. Thank thank you for playing, uh, Sean Connery. I always I hope that you have the an answer that will win the day and make me not have to tax you mercilessly. Uh, and
1: that's right, Rebecca The word of the day is Greece, and I'm using it. Greece
0: is the word. Greece, Greece, the country in Europe that is, right now. Uh, Threatening to default the euro. That is correct. Uh, How much did you wager?
1: I wagered it was the massage oil I used on your mother last night.
0: Right, right, yes. Thank you, Sean. Once again, you've made this game unbearable. I'm going to go home now and drown myself in the toilet. Thank you once again for joining us on another great episode of Celebrity in Jeopardy. Join us next week... We talked to Dick Cheney and Michael Jackson's Ghost. Thank you and come again soon.